We are wrapping up our, um, our series with part two of our look at David and Goliath. If last week uh, seemed chopped off, it's because we're overlapping some thought um, on, on David's bravery and his, what is, I think most people consider his greatest moment, uh, the, the most defining thing uh, of his life. Obviously, he had a number of moments, good and bad, we've said. Um, there's a lot. Some people just have a lot you know, in their life, and, and you've known some of those people. It seems like just a lot of things go their way, and they're pretty popular and have a lot of successes. Some people have one, one great moment. They're, you know, they're 15 minutes of fame, so to speak, and um, this is not David's 15 minutes of fame. Uh, he's a, a well-renowned, he's one of the, the main characters of our scriptures. Uh, but but if, if there was a, a moment in his life that we think of, this is certainly it. And so we're going to turn to First Samuel chapter 17, and we're going to kind of overlap. We're not reading the whole text. We, we read kind of the first two-thirds. We're going to overlap it and finish uh, the idea, or finish the text and kind of pick up some new ideas about his courage. First uh, Samuel chapter 17, verse 20, says, David rose early in the morning. He left the sheep with a keeper and took the things and went uh, as, as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. And Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array against army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supplier and ran uh, to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, uh, there was a champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words, and that's in the first part of the text where he's insulting the armies of God. And so David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches and give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes. Uh, and David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of God? And so the people answered him uh, as they had. And so it shall be done for the man who kills him, they said. And Eliab, the oldest brother, heard when he was talking to the men, and his anger became hot against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? Who did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness with? I know your pride and your evil motives, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not just a just cause? And he turned from him towards another, and he said the same thing, and the people answered him as the first ones did. Now, when the words of David which were heard were reported to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. Saul said to David, you can't go against this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. When a lion or bear would come and take a lamb from the flock, I'd go after it and strike it and deliver the lamb from his mouth. When it arose against me, I'd grab it by the beard, I'd strike it and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of those, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bears, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So David said, well, go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with a coat of mail. 
David fastened the sword to the armor and he tried to walk, but he couldn't because he had not been trained in them. And David said, so I can't walk with these. I've not trained. So David took them off and he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the book and he put them in a shepherd's bag, a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand and he uh, drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came and as he drew near to David, the man who was bearing the shield went in front of him. And when the Philistine looked around and saw David, he disdained him, for he was just a youth. Ruddy and good-looking, the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? You come to me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me. I will give your flesh to the, bird, to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts and God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you, and I will take your head off of you. And this day I will give your carcass to the camp of the Philistines, to the birds of the air, and the wild beasts of the earth, so that the, the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. But the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. And then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone. And he slung it, struck the Philistine in the forehead, sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. And so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. We're going to stop there. The last thing that we're going to be talking about is running forward. And somewhere in this story... Someone's going to say that there's, there's a lesson to be learned about what somebody will do for a pretty girl. Someone might do something like what you see here. Someone married to a girl who is on the East Coast, and he being driving around the country, giving speeches to churches, being on the West Coast in Portland, Oregon, might drive and sleep for four hours where you might see a red, a yellow dot. That might happen. And we might call this courage or we might call this stupidity. Uh, the, the list of things that, uh, that actually happened. I, I, left, uh, I left Portland, Oregon. This was in 2006. My daughter was born, so, so Katie was not able to take a full trip with us. And uh, she had a surgery scheduled and all sorts of things were going on. So... So she was with me. She flew out to Las Vegas. We went. We drove up to Portland. Her daughter, her cousin, was getting married that year. So she flew back to Rutland, Vermont. Uh, and so I had one more place to speak um, after after that. And so uh, on Thursday, I spoke Wednesday night. On Thursday at noon, exactly noon, I went to Burger King and I left from Portland, Oregon. Noon Thursday, I got back to Rutland, Vermont. Uh, Saturday evening at ten o'clock. Now uh, you consider I'm losing three hours going that direction and do the math. Uh, there's 46 hours, I believe. That's 46 hours up there. I had three. I didn't. I slept for four hours in Biz, just about a half hour after Bismarck. Uh, uh, and uh, you can do some math. It wasn't a whole lot. And I didn't even speed that much. But uh, you also notice I took a trip through Canada. I'll never do that again. And and if you want to talk about what it's like to run the border. Um, you can see me afterwards, uh, accidentally. I'll add that to the time that I spent. Unfortunately, didn't spend an extra 24 hours in Canada. Um, 
I don't think that uh, marrying Saul's daughter was a great motivator. It might be a great motivator to do stupid things driving across the country. But I'm telling you right now that if a nine foot six guy throwing spears comes in this room and is interested in me, my wife better know how to run. Because that's what I'm learning to do. I'm good at that. Certain things are motivated. I don't think he said, you know, that, that tax thing. I like that. Ta I don't like taxes either. But, but taxes is not a great motivator for, for doing what he did. When we're looking about courage, and, and there's some, some interesting things in here, and I noticed um, someone copied that into their wrong, so we're, you try to read yellow on white. Anyway, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there was a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I ran after him and struck him and delivered it into his mouth. If he rose up against me, I'd grabbed him by his beard and struck him and I'd kill him. Uh, and then again, at the end of verse 48, he says, The Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. And he ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. You always find David in his courage running towards the opposition. I think it's interesting. I don't think that's, a, I don't think that's just in there for no reason. You know, you don't see David trying to follow the lion or the bear, hoping he'll get bored and maybe put the sheep down for a moment. You don't, you don't see David like hiding out in some trees, hoping that David will make a miscalculation, or the Goliath will make a miscalculation and he can sneak attack him or something. He runs straight forward. And in fact, he doesn't just run towards Goliath. He runs towards the army. That's... I mean, Stupidity to me. <laughs> That's my logic. He runs towards the battle line, which is behind, and we're going to look at some, some graphics here in a little bit of this. But, but I want to break down what was in this sense of urgency he had. Public stands, and we're talking about our public faith, requires courage sometimes. And there's this passion that we're going to talk about and this urgency to accomplish things that we need to develop. That's a part of bravery that overrides whatever fears that we might have. Look at proper passion. He had a proper passion. Verse 28 and 29, he says, Eliab, the oldest brother, heard when he spoke against the men. And these are verses we've kind of already read a couple times and looked and drew some, some points from. He says, his anger was hot against David. He says, why have you come down here? You get down to the bottom, he says, David said, what have I done now? Is there not a just cause? Is there not a good reason for this? Why didn't they go down to war? Simply the motivation. They have the experience. They have the armaments. They have all that. They've trained in the stuff. They had the same motivation of, of getting a pretty girl. 
and having no taxes. What, what was the motivation? Well, that was their exclusive motivation. Or I suppose um, this is another motivation. It says, Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. I, I suppose they could, they could have had the motivation simply of military duty. Some people will do things for military duty. But this was not one of them. This, this didn't fit into what they could get themselves to do. So they had a just cause. What was the just cause? David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you defied. And his cause was the name of the Lord. That was what his cause was. That's what overrode any other impulse to run away. He had a cause that was just. Do we have to get up in arms literally or figuratively over idiots who say bad things about God? Well, I don't know as though it was specifically that, that God was insulted. When you read here, um, Goliath doesn't really say anything about God, the Philistine. He doesn't say anything specifically. Your God stinks. That's not in here. But, but it's still something in here that says the name of the Lord was being insulted as far as David was concerned. This is if you're driving on the highway. Um, to the left would be where the Philistines were camped, up that hill, that slope. And to the right, you can't really see it. Well, I'll look, I'll look at a different picture, is where the, uh, you're right in the valley of Elam here. Just kind of weird now. It's like every day, these people are driving right by David and Goliath. It would be weird to me. On the right, that, that series of range of, of mountains, which is significantly steeper, and you'll see that in the next picture, is where, the, where Israel was. Um, this is looking at it from the other direction. That's that road that you're on. So now we're looking east. So the left side is, is, the, uh, is where Israel was. And I don't know if you get that from the picture. Maybe it's kind of fuzzy. But, but where the Philistines were was not in an advantageous position. It was kind of a slope that goes down. And, uh, and, and you see on the left side, there might, you might see those little lines that come down. They're, they're paths. You have, they had to have paths to go down. Because where the, the, advantage, the advantageous position was where Israel was. They had a steep precipice. The Philistines weren't going up there. That's why he kept on going out into this valley right in the middle and, and challenging people and, and trying to get them, coax them out. Because they knew that they had the size advantage and that they were going to win down down there. And so every day, he goes out there and does this. And the Jews just stay up there on the top where it's pretty safe. And they don't do anything. They just listen to him. Maybe today he'll, they'll get bored and go away. That's, that's their reasoning. They're afraid. They know they can't win. Oh, we can't win in the, in the field. They're, just, they're huge. They're huge people. And so every day, this is, where, this is where the name of the Lord is insulted because every day, God, who is supposed to protect them, 
to all, any other nation that would be observing this, they're not doing anything. This, this guy's coming out and challenging them and they're not doing anything. God's reputation is being tarnished by their inactivity, is what the reality is. That, that's how the name of the Lord becomes this cause. He says, what are you doing? How long have you been here? And you're doing nothing. Some people say, well, and you, you might have heard this before. Yeah, I don't need to get it. God is big enough to defend his reputation. I don't need to do that. He's big enough. Yes, he is. That's not what Paul thought. Not that he questioned God's size or capability, but that's not the way Paul says it. He says, you who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of the Lord is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, we have the responsibility of upholding the reputation of God. I don't get to say, well, that's God. God, God, God can handle his own reputation. My inactivity insults God. And so that motive, that impulse, should move me to be public about my faith in God. In the name of the Lord. David had a personal attachment. He used the illustration. He says, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father if there came a lion or bear and take a lamb or flock. And he goes on into to the, to the story that we've, we've gone through. He kept sheep for his father. David was a rescuer. He'd been trained at rescuing. Now, uh, John says, I'm the good shepherd. Or Jesus has said it. John records it. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He, he who's a hired hand, not a shepherd, doesn't own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And he runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. These were David's father's sheep. That's a significant thing. There's a personal attachment. Now, there's not just a personal connection. This is not about cute, cuddly sheep. I mean, maybe there's that. I mean, if, if, you're on a, if you've been on a farm or you know somebody's on a farm, tell every kid to say the same thing. Don't name the cow. If you want to name the cow, name it hamburger because that's what it's going to be. Don't name the pig unless you want to name it bacon because that's what it's going to be. Don't develop an attachment to it, right? And it never works. But there's more to that than just the, the attachment to the animal itself. I want to look at that. Now, there's a flaw in this comparison if we're, when we're comparing the sheep situation with the Goliath situation because certainly David has no warm fuzzies for any of the Philistines. I think that's kind of, I mean, the, the, it's a most picturesque story, especially the ending. It's kind of a gross ending. Our, our Bible is definitely PG-13. There's some gross stories in there. 
So it's not a perfectly analogous situation. So we have to understand that what David was comparing was the idea that really nothing beyond the fact that God took care of me in this situation and he's going to take care of me in this situation. That's really as far as David was taken. I do want to draw something from it, though, because I think there were certain motivations that he had that are analogous. It was about preservation, I think. As we say, the sheep represent more than just cute creatures. And they're not pets. Wool was your clothing. And when, it, I mean, it was, it was cheese and milk. When it couldn't produce, it became lamb chops. And the skin became leather for shoes or whatever. I mean, everything was used. Sheep were preservation. Now, if, if there truly was a small number of sheep, like Eliab said, then that makes each one even more important to the family. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second. But there was, I believe, a compassion that drove David. Oh, let me back up here. He says, if he's able to fight with me and kills me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants to us. This is Goliath. This is kind of in that first section. We didn't read it tonight or this morning, but, but uh, um, we read it previously. And this is the odds. This is the stakes. This is that same... Looking at the, what the sheep represented, this represents their livelihood. It represents his uh, family's ability to survive and be fed and be clothed. And this, this giant represents the freedom of God's people. There's something significantly at stake. So I don't think he was... The rescuer in David wasn't rescuing the Philistines, like you might think of the sheep in first, you know, as some comparison to. He was rescuing his own people. There's a just cause. And so he considered that the lamb's peril was greater than his own peril. It's interesting that, that in, this, in this passage he says, if a, if a bear or if a lamb comes and, and if he rises up against me, then I strike. So, so apparently in all those numerous times that this happened, it wasn't a necessity that he always killed the bear or lion. So, it just happened to be that if the situation required it, then, then we went to that. So I, again, I have no idea how often this is occurring. But if he rises up against me, well, this is what I do. I, I, do, I have seen a bear 20 feet from me, about as far as from me to wall. No weapons. <laughs> Not a comfortable position to be in. And I froze. It wasn't in a zoo. <laughs> there was nothing between it and me. 
And I, I thought it was, I was at a camp in northern Minnesota, and I thought it was some kids outside because there were some girls in our dormitory, and, uh, and, and we had a room, and, and so I, I made the natural connection that this might be some boys outside. I don't know. I just, the first thing that I did not think was there's a bear right outside of the dorm. But I heard this rustling right outside. So I go outside, and I'm getting ready. I, I was just about to yell at these kids. And out from the other side of my van, I'm standing on the edge of a, of a deck of a, a cabin. And my van is like right there. And, and then out walks a bear. Now, bear knew I was there. I mean, that's what bears do. They, they smell from miles and miles away. They, you know, I, I wasn't moving, but he didn't need me to move to know if I was there or not. And I just froze. I mean, if it came at me, I, I wasn't grabbing it by no beard. <laughs> it wasn't striking it or killing it. I'd, it was going to do what it wanted to do. It just kind of moseyed on over and uh, got into the trash. And I just I, I sat there and watched it walk like you know a football field. I, I couldn't move. So I suppose there's not always a need to kill it, which is good in my case. But here, there was a need. There was a need to do something and, and get beyond your personal fear. And something took him out of what, to me, would be the natural reaction to freeze or run. My feet weren't doing neither. But David had a motivation. He had a just cause. And that propelled him. He had a trust. Trust signifies reliability. Back up here. And since David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons, in the days of Saul, man was... Already old, advanced in years, and the three oldest sons of Jesse followed Saul uh, to the battle, and the names of the three sons were this. Now, you do math, there's eight sons. There's three in battle, and the youngest one is taking care of the livelihood of the entire family. Where are the other four? Good question. What are they doing? David has a history of reliability. That's why he's entrusted with this. Not because it's the smallest, least important task. It is the task which keeps your family alive. It might be the most significant thing that happened with this family. The most important job is making sure you have food and clothing. And David was given this task. We saw it. He was out with the sheep and came in with the sheep when, when, earlier when Eli comes. He says, do you have any other sons? Yeah, oh yeah, I got one. He's with the sheep. Here he is with the sheep. Not a lightweight task. Well, <clears throat> he gets a promotion. How do I say he gets a promotion Look at verse 15. I, I, I didn't notice this until I was writing this sermon. I, I, I've, I've never noticed this before. However, many times I've seen this. It said, David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. So 
I always kind of read the story and was like, oh, say, David, can you go see? Uh, I got some cheese. Bring it to the cat. This is apparently something he did regularly, more than once. And so he would leave the sheep with a keeper and go. Come back and report. It just happens to be this time that we get the, the story about some great need. But he had apparently regularly been going back and forth. Now, remember, he's a youth, right? We've talked about a youth, so, so somewhere mid to late teens, likely. And this is important. Now, you see Bethlehem over there? And this is the front. That red thing is the Valley of Elam. And the yellow line represents the Philistines on the south and west. And so the north and the east are controlled by uh, that pink line, if you can see it, is, is where the Israel was. And, and Bethlehem's, oh, it's only about 12 miles straight. Now, I don't know if you look at that and say uh, how easy that would be to get from one place to the other. You know, 10 miles. That doesn't look like nice, comfortable terrain to me. And 10 miles... If you had to guess how, what, what direction you would take there, can, can you look at that and go, how would you go? Well, this is how you would go here. If we can, oh, That's about where the battle took place, and that would be the path you would take to get there. <laughs> a little bit more than, a little bit more than uh, 10 miles by the time you get there over that terrain. And that was given multiple times to a 17-year-old kid. Alec, that's you. Go hoof it. <laughs> right? That's a man that's reliable. That's a man that's got a degree of trust. Adelaide's asking if she can ride her bike to, on the path that goes to her school right over here from my house. Well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll, we'll talk about it. 10 miles and back, 12, 15, whatever that is. Regularly to a war front. To a war front. I forgot to mention that small detail. In our time, we are watching something, I think, similar unfold. We see a combat where one side, you thought, was significantly overmatched, heading into it. Right? Maybe it turns out it wasn't so so much, but and we see a lot of others sitting on the sidelines, not doing a whole lot, a little here and there. But those who should be expected to have greater capabilities, and they have concerns like geopolitics or things like that. And then you see the Christians displaying bravery. Uh, online, kind of indirectly connected, a Christian using his vehicle to smuggle people out that he's not supposed to be taken across the border. That's cr crazy. It's crazy. 
people loading up their vehicles and driving into war zones with supplies and then getting some people and take them over to the border. That, that's crazy. My feet would say, mm -hmm. <laughs> look like a bear to me. I don't, I don't, I, I'm impressed by that. I'm impressed every bit by that as I am of David. To see, to see people who can do that. To see people who see a just cause. I mean, people here are doing what they can. What, what can I do? Okay, I'll give some financial support or I'll do this. This is what I can do. Why do they do this? They exhibit the character of David. They exhibit the, the passion for God's cause. And we see people being one to Christ throughout this process. People staying in Kiev because there's Christians there that need a place to meet. And so they meet in a basement of a church building instead of leaving. I don't comprehend that, but that's probably because I haven't lived in it, and and I, I I can't imagine it. And so it's obvious that they have practiced this type of behavior. They've earned a trust. It it doesn't come. That type of thing doesn't come unless you've practiced it already, to some degree. I mean, immediately churches, within a day, churches were mobilized. I met new people within a day that I have never met before. And so many have lost material possessions and means of physical support and things that they will never have. Again, houses, cars, stuff, stuff, stuff that they really probably at this moment don't consider that precious right now. They will eventually. But they realize what is important. And so there is an emotional attachment to people, to brethren, to fellow countrymen, to people from other countries, to those who are outside and, and donating their church buildings and turning them into to refugee centers and all kinds of crazy things. When everything else is stripped away, the name of God has to be glorified. When, when I have no possessions and I, I have all that, that stuff that I, I like and I have and it's nice to have, and if it gets stripped away, the name of God still must be glorified. in the middle of my life, which is relatively safe, and my interactions. Tim talked about being busy. <clears throat> being busy and busy, busy. And I've got this and I've got this project and this thing and all our things. Is there needs to be a practiced awareness that people are in danger. Even here. People are in spiritual danger, even here. 
And that urgency needs to override my fear to open my mouth and say something. That, that, that freeze that I get. What do I say? Yes, preachers experience that too. In our lives, what situation? What situation keeps me from courageously sharing my faith? What, what fear? What, what is the thing that I fear? Because if, if I'm not doing it, then there's a fear. And if I'm not public about my faith, what, what is there? Think about the fear, okay? Recognize the thing that I'm afraid of, but understand what is the just cause? And I hope, I hope the life of David has, has given us a, a greater understanding into courage, the courage that's necessary uh, to be public in our faith.